Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. This is the first episode in an exciting lineup for our first season of the show. Over the course of this season, we'll explore the new fascism, black hood against police power, opera houses in the state of Michigan, and the poetry of wild abundance. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Gabe Dotto, the press's director, and Catherine Cox, the press's editor-in-chief, to discuss the history and future of MSU Press and to explore some of the issues confronting university press publishers today. Gabe, Catherine, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks Thanks for having us. I'm happy you're here. So, Gabe, I thought I'd start our discussion with you and think a little bit about an overview of MSU Press and its publishing activity. Could you tell us a little bit about the press and its history, what it's been working on lately? Well, interestingly, the history of publishing at the institution is much older than the press itself. Uh, We found a book from 1876, uh, a manual of apiary, everything the beekeeper needs to know. And it was actually a bestseller. It went through several editions, sold a number of copies. I wish it was still in print. So in a sense, the institution itself has been publishing for over 140 years. Um, And the early publishing was very much connected to the land-grant mission, uh, books in the mechanical arts, agricultural science. So I like to think of as an institution that's been publishing stuff that actually matters for 140 years. A formal press was established in 1947. So we're about in the middle of the pack as far as Big Ten schools go. They range from uh, schools that were founded as far back as 1918, sorry, presses, that would be Illinois, and the most recent one, 1969, at Iowa. Interestingly, in the Big Ten, which is one of the most active publishing uh, groups in academia in the United States, um, all but one of the member universities um, have a press uh, with quite distinguished programs. Early on, uh, Michigan State Press uh, did what every, almost every, press does when they first start out, and it's an extension of teaching materials for the university itself. Um, So mostly things like course packs and classroom texts. And I was looking at our uh, publication list from the 1940s and 1950s, and there's some gems. My favorite, I hope to track down a copy of this, is Homogenized Milk, a Review and Guide. and readings in financial management. But what's also interesting is at the same time, uh, they were uh, doing a number of books in lit crit, art history, uh, readings in the history of civilization, and uh, things like the Elizabethan Malady, a study of melancholia, English literature from 1580 to 1642. So the humanities were very, very important uh, very early on. Um, Where we fit, uh, within our peers, let's say, let's stay with the Big Ten again. Um, uh, when I first came on, uh, we were a um, um, very distinguished, very modest proportions. Uh, 2007, they published 19 books that year and had 10 journals. Uh, and um, over the course of its history, um, uh, there have been a lot of fluctuations as far as the amount of publishing. Uh, last year, uh, we easily topped 40 books, and I think we're aiming in the next year to be up in the 50s. And we've now expanded very recently to 12 journals, soon to be 13. Oh. So um, we've got an active book list at this point of close to 900 titles, wow. a backlist. And um, 
among the things that uh, I wanted to do when I came here is um, really put some different kinds of focus to what we were publishing here. Um, there were uh, a number of excellent titles that had been done by the uh, very, very good acquisitions team, uh, one of whom is still with us and has been with the press for a number of years, Julie Lohr, um, and has been uh, a real force in developing uh, regional studies and yeah. Native American studies, uh, very quite ne- well known in the field. Um, I uh, wanted to take an overview of what were really important uh, points of connection here with the work that was done at the university, yeah. especially the important areas of African studies. And uh, the press had uh, represented a number of African publishers through the African Books Collective for mm. years, but didn't do very much of its own publishing in that area. So we launched uh, together with uh, Nwando Achebe, uh, of course, uh, but we proposed launching a Journal of West African History, which has been very successful. I very much wanted a uh, journal in um, GLBTQ that also um, would involve policymakers and in some cases, non-academics that were working with cutting-edge social issues. And we were very fortunate to get two excellent uh, editors that have carried this journal forward. And uh, we'll be launching, uh, we'll be taking over an aquatic ecosystems journal, which ties very close to the Great Lakes studies we do here. Uh, Journal for Gender and Sexuality, which has a long and distinguished career, now will be coming here. And uh, thanks to the effort of Natalie Eidner, who's our journals editor, and to Catherine here, uh, in two years' time, they'll be launching a new journal in rhetoric that'll let her to talk about. Very exciting. Um, so um, also among the things that made a lot of sense here, uh, because of the strong sociology presence on this campus, we launched a, a series about animal and human relationships and Latinos. So that's the sort yeah. of things we've been doing yeah. since 2007. I think it's really interesting that even as the press branches out and starts to do other things, it still is working on part of the university mission, working with people who are doing things on campus, areas where we have strengths, trying to serve the region as it serves a greater scholarly community. Catherine, you, I wanted to turn to you now because you joined the press just recently. You did um, acquisitions in Iowa before and some other scholarly publishing. I wonder what attracted you to MSU Press and what kinds of things you want to accomplish in your time here as editor-in-chief. Sure, yeah. Well, I think what attracted me to MSU Press was that it has some very strong lists, um, nationally and even internationally known lists. Uh, Gabe has mentioned some of the strengths. Um, I would add to that our really prestigious list in rhetoric. Um, We have a strong journal in that field and also a very strong book series. And both of those are taking some interesting directions as we go forward. Um, And we are you know, as, again, as Gabe mentioned, uh, launching a new journal in rhetoric as well. So those are really important publications that give us a national profile. Um, it's always fun to work on a list that, that people are really anxious to be part of. Um, and as Gabe mentioned, uh, Julie Lohr, who's been with us for more than 30 years, has established a very well-known and well-respected list in Native American studies, both history and literature there. Um, and we have some prize-winning newer series as well, um, including a groundbreaking series on the philosophy of René Girard, uh, who's a major French and a French philosopher who was based in the United States for much of his career. Um, and we're looking at some interesting um, ways to develop our existing lists in African studies as well. So I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on here. Um, and I've had an opportunity just since I've been here to build on some of those relationships on campus. So we 
are just beginning to talk about some additional partnerships on campus to um, offer a platform to some of the publications that are coming out of the International Studies Center um, and possibly to establish some new series with faculty on campus um, as part of initiatives that they're undertaking. So, you know, it's a very active press um, and it's built up a really good profile um, in a number of interesting areas. And then, you know, because we are seeing the retirement of a couple senior staff people, we're wishing them a very happy retirement. It also means we'll be bringing on some new people and we have, we'll have some new energy to, to pursue some of these new directions that we're going in. Yeah, opportunities for growth and change. Mm-hmm. You know, there was an interesting thread going around the publishing mailing list today about careers in publishing. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about one of the press's other functions, um, you know, in addition to all of its publication activity, one of the things that that's easy to overlook is the fact that there's people doing a variety of different kinds of jobs and that the press has a connection to the pedagogical mission of the university insofar as there's opportunities for students to come and engage with the production process, marketing processes, those kinds of things. We've talked about some opportunities in that regard. Catherine, I wonder what you think of the press uh, as fulfilling that kind of a role at the university. Well, I'm really excited about it. Um, I know the press has had internship programs in the past, um, and so we're returning to some of those now and refreshing them. Um, I think a notice went up in the English department recently or will go up very soon for an undergraduate internship program for um, senior English majors. Um, So keep your eye out for that. Um, And we are also looking at bringing an English grad student has been working on a couple of our journals for a while. We'll be coming in to work more closely with the press um, starting in the fall. And we are talking with the graduate school about um, having a graduate assistantship that would be not just for students in the English department, but for students in a wide range of humanities and social science fields. They'll be able to apply for that. So I'm hoping that notice will go out very soon, too, um, and we'll have those students working with us by the, by the fall. Um, and it's a really great opportunity for us. It's part of building our partnerships on campus. Um, it's also something that's really close to my heart. Um, I got a PhD and then discovered that, you know, I didn't want to be a faculty member. Um, and publishing was really where I wanted to be and, and the kind of work that I find most invigorating. And I know there are a lot of graduate students now looking at their career possibilities. And it's really important to me um, to be a resource for them and to give people opportunities to think about what they can do, really intellectually satisfying careers that they can pursue that that aren't necessarily tenure track uh, teaching. Um, so I'm really interested in giving people that possibility. Um, and because I love publishing and I feel like what we do is really critical for the continuation of various forms of scholarship, that if we can encourage people to be involved with it, that's that's a really positive thing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point, and it is it is incredible. I think the degree to which publishing activity is is a kind of undervalued intellectual activity, right? Like that that participating in a field as someone who publishes the work of the people doing research in that field often gives you a whole different perspective on the kind of work being done, on the way that a field changes over time, on the way that people interact with each other through publication. That I think is unique unto this sort of endeavor that you don't get as, you know, a researcher necessarily and can be as, as you say, as intellectually fulfilling as any other kind of labor that happens in the university. Well, it's interesting because I could probably, uh, I've been at this 41 years, and uh, I really could count on the fingers of one hand the number of people that have told me that 
from a very early age, they wanted to get into publishing <laughs> at right. some level. Sure. Um, the first thing you need to be is intellectually curious, and you have to be fascinated in awful lot of things. And you can actually come at it from any field. And most people that I know, what happened is they got into publishing tangentially and fell absolutely head over heels in love with it. Uh, it's very, very dynamic. It changes constantly. Um, and don't just think of the mechanical side of it, or producing books, because essentially what it boils down to is like any other form of important communication. It's about new ways of disseminating information. Yeah. And for that reason, I find academic publishing, I've been, I've worked both in commercial and reference book and academic publishing, and of the three, hands down, the most exciting work intellectually is in academic publishing. You're working with a lot of cutting-edge ideas. Um, you get to have fascinating conversations with very fascinating yes. people, yeah. uh, even if it's not your area of specialization. And the interesting thing is, um, since you're also working backstage, as it were, you're also following the flow of peer review. You're following the flow of discussions. Um, yeah. Really, really very dynamic, ongoing things, whether it's in the hard sciences or in the humanities. You're really in a marvelous position to watch evolving areas uh, of study. And um, without having the weight of thinking, oh, I'm participating in this and I have to prepare a paper sure. for a conference, you know, sure. you're actually participating in, in, in really engaging ways and having... Uh, wonderful uh, intellectual conversations that way. So it's 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 dangerous. I also have to warn people, once you get into it, it could really easily swallow you up. You know, I mean, the old phrase was printer's ink gets in your blood. Yeah. But, but intellectually, that really does happen. Um, uh, I will say that uh, as far back as, oh, when I first started the University of Chicago Press, and there was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education that was talking about the crisis in publishing. Well, there's always sure. been a crisis in publishing. Sure, you know, as in every if you field. Just, if you just look at numbers. But what's really exciting and really dynamic is how quickly it's evolving and how academic press is actually, because we do so much cutting-edge work. Yeah. And this is even very, very true in the humanities, even areas like fiction and poetry. Um, uh, we're really right on the crest there and watching these things. And so um, it can be a very exciting field. Um, speaking of development, we were saying earlier when uh, back in 2007, the press had a uh, presence of 14% of its books were available digitally, of its publications. No books, just its journals. And 10 years later, it was up to 37%. And now almost every book that we do, front list, uh, also has an electronic component. And they're sliced and diced and chopped up and used in very interesting ways yeah. uh, that we wouldn't even be able to predict. Yeah, I think that's really I think that's really interesting too. The dynamism of you, you'd mentioned something about um, cutting edge ways of transmitting information or making scholarship accessible. Uh, it makes me think of some of the projects that the press has done recently that are that are different than your traditional academic monograph. We've got a two volume series of graphic narratives that cover Native American issues uh, called Sovereign Traces, which is really exciting. I don't see tons of presses foraying into graphic novel there, publishing. There actually are a few, and there's at least one person who has done a, a graphic novel uh, dissertation so yeah, far. I so, think there's yeah. a couple of yeah. yeah. I think that's really exciting. And then there's um, there's some community-engaged publishing going on, the Detroit Waterfront Project and some others. I wonder if um, if that's important to your, your vision of the press as publishers, the sort of cutting-edge ways that we can think about repurposing, re-delivering, you know, disseminating information in new forms and genres. Well, I'd hate to dredge up old terms that were so, so trendy some years ago and seem to have petered out like interdisciplinary and multimedia. But the fact is um, the new digital platforms allow us to be both. 
uh, without having to wave flags about it and worry too much about it. What's changing rapidly, and this is where I think academic presses, some academic presses uh, are watching it very closely, is how the information is being used. In a certain sense, it hasn't changed that much. You know, we complain about the fact, oh my goodness, people aren't buying the books anymore, they're very expensive, are people reading a monograph all the way through? But think about it. You're both PhDs. I'm a, I have my own scholarship endeavors on the side. And the way that we approach some of the books that we have to refer to is, you know, we've only read one chapter that was the most pertinent one. Or what's happening now is the digital possibilities of accessing information in those ways. Not, not just piecemeal, not scattershot, not, not avoiding diving deeply into a subject if you're actually a scholar. But um, the broad range of ways that you can access information is increasingly making the old form of the monograph um, very, very, very 20th century. Sure. Well, actually, 15th century through the 20th. And so these are some of the challenges. It's not going to go away, but it's interesting to watch. No, no, I'm not saying it's being substituted, but it's interesting to watch how things are being accessed. Please disagree with me. Oh, no, I think it's very interesting because Cambridge and Oxford um, collaborated on a study of the value of the monograph recently. It came out just a few months ago. Um, and it was pretty striking to me that, you know, particularly they, the, so they surveyed, uh, I think it was something like 5,000 scholars across the world um, in the social sciences and humanities. And to no one's surprise, the historians value the monograph the most, but other disciplines also value it. Um, but even as they celebrated, the scholars celebrated the capacity of the monograph to really let you develop a long-form argument and really explore a topic they all also admitted that most they read very few books from beginning to end, and mostly they're accessing them. As Gabe just said, they're looking at a chapter, or they're you know picking through the index and finding the the parts that are most relevant to them. So I think there's a um, an interesting divide signaled there between the way that many of many scholars in the humanities and social sciences write and think, and the way that they do research. Um, and so I think it's really incumbent on us. You know, now that we have these ways of supporting monographs electronically, presenting them electronically, and then getting into them, accessing them in so many different ways, so many different ways to search, so many different ways to download, to look at things, that publishers really have to keep up with that and make sure that we are producing the metadata to make sure that all of our content is really highly accessible that way. Because if if more and more people are approaching your monographs not by seeing an entry in a catalog or searching for it on Amazon, but going into JSTOR books or Muse books and doing a keyword search and just having it pop up alongside journal articles and reviews and all of the other things that they can find. Um, we need to make sure that we've got the really rich, stable metadata so that when people search, they're finding our books and they're finding the relevant material. Um, and I think we're still in the process of figuring out what that means and making sure that we're generating that kind of data. Um, but, but, and Ka- it, but Catherine has touched on a very, very important point that distinguishes for me the ongoing, absolutely in no way diminishing importance of the mission of what university presses do. And that is reliable peer review and reliable fact checking and et cetera. Um, you know, there was this interesting book that Harvard University Press published a year or two ago called The Death of Expertise, and essentially uh, what the Internet has now created 
uh, people that used to sit around. Remember Cliff at the bar on Cheers? Sure. You know, and that was that was just three or four people that sat around and listened to somebody spout, you know, sillinesses. Um, the fact is now with the with the internet, anybody with a mouth and a keyboard uh, is a self-proclaimed expert, and it becomes more and more dangerous. I mean, if I go back to the days of my youth, I mean, our Wikipedia was the Encyclopedia Britannica, but you knew that there was a huge and vastly expensive network of experts that they had tapped, and it was so expensive to publish those books, and it took so long to come out with them that you made very, very sure that those articles were extremely reliable. Today, there's a morass of absolute garbage. Uh, we're sometimes purposefully inundated with um, white noise, um, conflicting opinions, and uh, et cetera. And I think the role of university presses has, in fact, become even more important because there was a time when some types of trade presses and some types of publishing took this kind of effort, took this kind of time, this kind of expense. Um, much of it has now just been put off onto, okay, you're the single expert and we'll just trust whatever you publish. We'll just check for typos. Academic presses do not do that and they will continue to not do that. So it really pains me when I see occasionally um, academic presses come under fire for whatever reason because that is a role that we cannot overlook. This, the, the vital importance of peer review because it's the entire community of scholars, it's in everyone's interest that there be reliable data, or at least the cutting edge data be, you know, thoroughly uh, considered, be, be, be well based on previous work, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned university presses coming under fire, which sort of leads me to the last question and the sort of last sense of discussion that I wanted to have today. It's not uncommon today to hear of university presses coming under fire. Not long ago, Stanford faced huge cuts. Uh, there's been recent kerfuffles at Wayne State that were uh, seemingly you know, benevolently resolved, but it was a tumultuous period for a while trying to figure out what was going on there. Um, yesterday, there was a tweet that went around that I thought uh, was a good encapsulation of this. And it comes from a person who would presume to be, you know, speak on behalf of the community. It's a channel called Against the Grain uh, that offers the latest news about libraries, publishers, and vendors. And the tweet was a simple question for a poll uh, where they said, Given the growing availability of preprint servers, institutional repositories, and open access publications, do publishers have a future? Which is a sort of glib question, right? But it seems, you know, that even the sort of scholarly communities that we seek to serve in the university press publishing world are asking themselves this question, like, what is this apparatus for? What does it do? What do they and the administrators who want to cut budgets and fold presses into other units, what do they miss about university press publishing? Well, I think one very basic thing that they miss is, you know, Gabe made a reference earlier to the mechanical side of publishing. Um, they miss that. They miss the management of peer review. Um, I was talking with, so the, the AU Presses recently did a survey of the membership on open access, um, and I was talking to uh, one of the people who conducted the survey, and she said, you know, she's had conversations with people in libraries who take up publishing, and many libraries have gotten involved in publishing lately. And she said these particular people were really astounded at the amount of work that they had to do. You know, her example was that they were surprised to find, oh, gosh, the author did not deliver his manuscript when he said he would. You know, and so... I really feel pretty strongly, and I know about the existence of preprint servers and institutional repositories and all of that. If universities end up undermining their presses or closing their presses, 
they will end up having to reinvent what we do in some other unit of the university, and they will have to hire people to do it and essentially recreate all of the functions that we produce because scholars need to produce scholarship. You know, they, they do it because they love it. They do it because they have to do it to keep their jobs and to get tenure and promotion. You know, as long as there's an expectation that scholars are doing research and sharing it with each other, you will need a publisher of some kind. And, you know, peer review is a big part of that. Um, but also all the value added that, that we bring to it in identifying the best scholarship, making sure voices, innovative voices get heard. You know, presses have done a great deal of work to support scholars who are building new fields, who are raising challenging questions, who are pressing points of view that may not be popular. Um, and, you know, that's all essential works, work that presses do to make sure that those voices get heard, that that material is out there fully and appropriately vetted um, by peers, um, and that we do it in a way that, you know, we're providing thorough copy editing and good, clean design so that the works we put out there are readable and accurate. And, you know, for every citation, there's a listing in the work in the work cited, you know, things like that, that people, you don't realize until you come across something that's very poorly prepared, how absolutely critical that work is to making sure that scholarship is fully vetted, nicely presented, readable, all of those things. That's the work that presses do. Right. There's another factor as well. And, uh, Catherine certainly must have many examples in her own career. I have quite a few. There's no reason to go any more than them. But it's not simply a matter of turning it into a beautiful final product. Uh, we've all worked with authors who had brilliant ideas but couldn't express their way out of a paper bag sure. or have a completely chaotic approach to how they assembled their manuscript. The more experience an acquisitions editor acquires and working in tandem with um, a really skilled manuscript editor I personally have a number of examples of books that I, behind the scenes, recast, turn around, spoke with the author, throw some stuff out, focus things differently. And if you simply scan, uh, you know, pick up any number of few dozen books and look at the acknowledgments, and some of them will gush on and on, not too much, but um, read between the lines when they really gush about the work that a press or a specific editor did for them, what's often happened is uh, they received an inchoate mass of really good data in a box that wanted to become a book. And if it hadn't been for very skilled people working on the other side, it's not simply a matter of editing and typesetting and design. Of course it is. makes for beautiful books, makes for a beautiful presentation. But there are a lot of times, and all acquisitions editors that have been doing this for more than 10 years have their anecdotes, of books that have really been turned into something that really, really was able to express what the author wanted thanks to heavy work of editing. And that can't be replaced. And I think, um, you know, when you think there's there's 110 or so members of the uh, Association of University Presses worldwide, there's only a little over 90 in the United States, but there's well over 1,000 degree-ranting RS1 or RST institutions, all of whom demand that their faculty publish. So on the faculty, of a, on, the, on the shoulders of a very small number of university presses yeah. that are carrying the weight for a lot of work like this. Um, I think we're very fortunate here at MSU. Uh, the press, uh, its direct reporting line is to the vice president of uh, graduate studies and innovation. They're fully on board with the and uh, our mission and very, very supportive uh, financially as well as uh, 
intellectually. There are some presses uh, in, in some institutions where you might have people that are obsessed with return on investment, uh, missing the entire picture. I mean, I, I, I think the press especially, like many teaching units, shouldn't in any way be held to what is an economic return. You're, the return you're doing is entirely, is entirely social. It's entirely intellectual. It's entirely about the whole mission of what a university is anyway. Yeah. And it pains me when I see that some of these problems have merely to do with, um, you know, uh, maybe some administrations worrying about, and presses really don't cost that much, but, you know, in the larger picture of sure. things and saying, sure. oh, but, you know, you're not earning money at this. Well, you know, spoiler alert, many commercial presses don't either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, the question of money and markets and things leads me to another uh, sort of thing that we haven't touched on a lot that the press offers. You know, it's one thing to prepare your own manuscript and stick it in a preprint server or an institutional repository. But one of the services that a press offers is connection to a larger community. There's a marketing department dedicated to spreading the word about your book. You're working with an acquisitions editor who has a list of people in your field who are you know, able to review that work for you and who will come to conferences to support your work and, and distribute your book and make a sort of connection among the people that you're trying to reach. So there's this whole other side of things that we don't think about where we just assume not only that we can get rid of, you know, copy editors and typesetters and et cetera, but also we'll get rid of all of the people who's, who really have expertise in delivering information and making things known to others. Well, just like whenever you go to a conference in your own field, What's one of the most crowded areas right off the bat? The sure. exhibits tables. Sure. People go immediately to the book section. They crowd the exhibits tables. What's new? What's coming out? Who's doing what? Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, there's a, a part of the book ecosystem and journal ecosystem as well um, that is invisible to most scholars. And there is a gigantic system of retail and wholesale book distribution um, that really exists behind the scenes that university presses are connected to. And, you know, you only need to have the experience of self-publishing and trying to get your book out there, trying to get it on bookshelves, trying to get it up on Amazon, trying to get all of yeah. these places to realize there is this whole immense system that has grown accreted over centuries of how people buy and sell and move books around the world and including the flow of information toward retailers, wholesalers, aggregators, et cetera. Um, and university presses are hooked into that and we know how to make it work and our data flows through those pipes. And, you know, it, it's, it's not an insignificant system. And it may be in talking about open access and talking about the importance of scholarly community and mission that we need to develop other kinds and forms of what librarians and publishers call discoverability, and that goes back to my point about the richness of metadata. But the fact is that that system of distributing books exists. Um, and it seems foolish to chop, you know, to chop the, the link between the universe, you know, the world of scholarly communications and the book distribution system, you know, just by saying, well, throw it on an, in an institutional repository and you're done. Yeah. Um, and it's the marketing people doing the work of, you know, the email blasts and the advertisements and the, all of that stuff. But it's also the fact that the metadata flows through that and this immense system that already exists. Um, and that doesn't happen by accident. You yeah. know, people have to make it happen. 
And that is also one of the the practical benefits of having university presses that are already connected to that system. Yeah, and able to do that work. I mean, anytime you say, let's let's do away with publishers, I don't think that a lot of academics realize what they're saying is, I'd like to take all of that work on myself. Mm-hmm. I'd Absolutely. like to be my own copy that is the best way to put it. my own marketing yes. advocate, yes. and I'd like to do all of those things and not have anyone help me with them. There's an extension of that as well, and that has to do with... Um, the necessity of having university presses, academic presses, that can feel that they can work absolutely independently, just like any department, any college within the university, to carry forward important research. And they they have to feel that they're not under some sort of pressure, whether it be a societal, political, any sort of distortion. I mean, university presses have to also feel that they have the independence to be able to move in directions and publish work that together with the faculty board, together with their board of advisors, they consider to be important work that can't be tied to questions of return on investment. I think that's a really good note on which to wrap it up. Um, And we'll be looking at some of the important work that MSU Press has been publishing over the course of the next few episodes of our podcast season. Uh, Before we go, I want to say thanks again to Gabe Dotto and Catherine Cox for talking with us today. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at MSU. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medea Ros, Dan- uh, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.